Welcome to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series, where throughout the world's greatest show at Expo 2020 Dubai, we'll be celebrating the best of the UK's creativity, innovation and culture, with special guests offering exclusive insight into ways we can innovate for a shared future. In this episode, host Chloe Thomas meets Carrie-Anne Philbin, MBE, an award-winning computer teacher, author, YouTuber and podcast host. Passionate about computing and computer science, Carrie-Anne strives to support educators across the globe so that young people can have access to a world-class computing and digital learning experience. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Future Focus UK at Expo podcast with me, Chloe Thomas, host of the multi-award winning e-commerce master plan podcast. Today, we are joined by Carrie-Anne Philbin, MBE, Director of Educator Support at Raspberry Pi. Hello, Carrie-Anne. Hello. Great to have you here. So thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Now, Whilst the UK is a world leader in computing education, which is very cool, we still have a long way to go. So how are you and the Raspberry Pi team pushing us for further forwards? Yeah, we really are world leaders in the UK in computing education. We're, we're actually quite rare. It's mandatory for young people aged between 5 and 16 to have access uh, in state schools to a full computing curriculum. And that includes kind of digital skills, it includes computer science, uh, it includes understanding the systems around us like machine learning and AI, understanding um, how the internet works. And you're right to say that's sort of fairly new. It came about in 2014. Um, and it's a real opportunity for us as a, as a nation to equip our young people with the skills that they need to change a sort of the world around them that's becoming ever more, more digital. And so the Raspberry Pi Foundation has been at the heart of that since 2007 when it was formulated. And, and really since 2012, it's been trying to support in as many areas as possible to help young people um, kind of become prepared for that future. So in terms of formal education, one of the things that we do is we train teachers, we provide educational resources, and we, we, we try and create a community of computing educators. We, we give them platforms to be able to share their best practice with each other. We have a research arm that's really trying to understand how we teach the subject really well, because in comparison to, say, our cousins in physics, um, which has been around for a really, really long time. Computer science is still new, so we're still trying to understand how to teach it well. And we're trying to, to find the best ways that really engage young people in seeing how the subject has a place in their life and how it can be a part of any area, any industry that they want to go into. And so my role really is about supporting educators, so really helping them with their confidence, with their skills, with their knowledge, and really trying to get them to come together and share best practice. What a fascinating job. And the other thing which strikes me is, gosh, I wish I was at school now. Can I go back and do, and do the course? It's never too late. I think of all the things I'm doing and how if, you know, I've, obviously being in, in the industry I'm in, I've learned an awful lot about coding and about tech and about hardware over the years. But to have that grounding from a, you know, a junior level is going to create such a more empowered workforce for us in the future. Yeah, and they're already so inspiring young people, even from five. You know, we're not saying we're teaching them how to write very complex algorithms. but We are teaching them what is an algorithm 
how to solve problems, how to you know start thinking in a, in a way that's quite computational. And it helps them solve problems in lots of ways. And, and what we're seeing sort of, I mean, it started around 2014, really, the curriculum started. So now we're seeing the benefits of some of those younger children as they've come up now into sort of secondary school age. And we're seeing what they're passionate about, say, you know, climate change, they're very passionate about. They want to solve these problems around them. And they're starting to use technology in a way that is really interesting and really inspiring because they've had that grounding in computational thinking from such a young age. I want to come back to that, but what we should do before we go any further is for the uninitiated, we should explain what a Raspberry Pi actually is, because it's not made of pastry and raspberries. So, um, Karen, what is a Raspberry Pi and why is it such an important part of this educational journey that, the, the, that everyone's on now? I mean, it can be a delicious pastry. <laughs> what we're talking about is a credit card size computer. It's very, very small and it's very, very cheap. It only costs $35. The first iteration came out in 2012. We're now on Raspberry Pi 4. We've sold around 40 million worldwide. So it's, it's a really great little device. And the, the idea behind it was that a group of people working at the University of Cambridge and within Cambridge itself, they thought back to when they were younger and how they got into technology. And it occurred to them that they had devices that they had to sort of control in order to get them to do anything. So they thought back to sort of BBC Micro Days, the ZX Spectrum, that there was this hardware that you had to sort of type commands into. You had to sort of understand how it worked to get it to do anything like play a game. Whereas sort of nowadays, technology is all around us. It's sort of very easy to use. It's all touchscreen. It sort of has a, a magic. You don't really need to know how it works to be able to use it. And so the idea was to create a device that anyone could pick up. You plug it into a TV. You can just plug in a USB keyboard and mouse and get going. You know, it runs free software and you can start controlling real world objects with it. You can use it like a normal PC. It's about bridging the digital divide. It's also about... Um, giving young people agency over the technology that they have. You know, it's theirs. It doesn't matter if they break it. You know, they're not using the home PC, which might only be one PC for the whole house, which might have all the family photographs on. So we don't want them messing around with that one. But give them a Raspberry Pi and they can, they can break it. And that's okay because you can just wipe the SD card, put the software back on, get going again. So that was really the idea originally behind the Raspberry Pi device. Um, which is something we produce as the Raspberry Pi Foundation. Uh, and it's one way in which we try and encourage young people into technology. I love that because when you were saying about you know the, the original creators of it, they thought back to when they got into computing and how they did it. I was immediately thinking of building a PC in a garage culture over in the States, which of course is where Microsoft came from, where Apple came from. So there's this whole history of if you get your hands on nuts and bolts hands-on level, then it, it has inspired so many huge and impressive businesses in the past. It, it seems like such an obvious step to take in retrospect, but I suppose it wasn't at the time. Well, technology has just advanced so quickly that before you realised it, you've created a sort of magic device. You know, you've created these amazing tablets that can take photographs, that can do all these, make videos and connect to the internet. But there's no way that's easy to kind of get into that software and start creating the technology that you want. I think one of the most empowering things I ever did as a teacher with Raspberry Pi was to connect a button. And it's very, very simple because it's the general purpose input outpins that are on the Raspberry Pi. Just a couple of wires and a very simple um, switch that you can get in any electronics store. And showing young people how to connect that and then teaching them the programming behind it, which again, isn't that advanced. You can use block-based um, programming languages like Scratch. 
the most empowering thing is to then say to a young person, what do you want your button to do? Okay, and every young person will have something they want that button to do. They might want it to um, play music. They might want it to um, explode some bot blocks in a game. They might want it to do just play inappropriate sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Surely not. But everyone has their own reason for wanting it to do something. And, and it's that agency that you can give young people with technology that is the building block for them solving much bigger problems in society. You know, creating rovers that go into the ocean and collect plastics, right? Going to Mars, you know, all of these things are in the future. If you can explain to young people that they can control technology, they can build technology and they can make it do the things that they want that technology to do, that's empowering. The other key thing I thought about when you were saying about what the Raspberry Pi actually is, is the price point. At only £35, it's a real inclusivity piece, isn't it? It's a very low barrier of entry. So, you know, your financial status, the financial status of your school is not a barrier to being able to get, get your hands on one of these. And that inclusivity piece is something you're doing a lot of work on, on the research side of how best to teach, isn't it? Yeah, it's really important to us. Equity in computing is very important. And that's not just access to technology and the devices themselves. It's also access to expertise. It's access to an environment where you can have the learning experiences involved in it uh, as well. Uh, and one of the areas that we've been quite interested in for a while is around gender and gender balance within computing. It, it seems quite obvious to say now, but you know, we know the industry the amount of women who are in the tech industry, it's quite a low percentage globally. I think we're around 17% here in the UK. We want to really encourage everybody. And I, I don't think this is just a gender piece. I think this actually speaks to other underrepresented groups as well. I think if we can kind of understand what's happening with girls and the uptake of GCSEs or A-levels or you know whatever accreditation that they're taking, if we can kind of understand the thought processes that are happening around that time, what interventions work and what interventions perhaps don't work, we can then pass that on to teachers and it can be put into the curriculum. As I said, we're very fortunate in this country that every young person has access to that education. So why is it then that that is not translating into those young women taking the subject at A-level and then onto university and then entering into industry? So we're doing a piece of research. We call it Gender Balance in Computing Education. We're actually running five interventions. Um, they're all field trials. It's funded by the Department for Education. It's one of the biggest um, field trials of this size. We were due to start all the trials in 2020, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, a global pandemic kind of has, has paused that a little bit. So we're looking now to start running those trials now that schools are going back here. And we want to understand things like a sense of belonging. Are young people, particularly girls, not taking the subject because they don't see themselves represented in the industry? So is there a role here uh, for uh, inspiring role models? If they can see people like them, are they more likely to take, take the subject? We're looking at things like how it's taught to so pedagogy. Are there particular forms of pedagogy that speak to uh, girls? that help them in. So things like pair programming, um, peer instructions, these are tools in a teacher's toolkit that they have that could really um, have a bigger impact than they realise. And we're thinking about things like timetabling and you know, how the school presents the subject to young people. Are they presenting in a way that shows it's of as equal importance as, say, some of the other 
subject areas. And all these little field trials, we're also trying to understand this uh, informal space. So clubs, you know, we have the largest network of um, after-school coding clubs through Code Club and Code Dojo worldwide. And we know because we get a good gender balance in all of those clubs, we have around 46% girls on average in those clubs. So we know the informal space, there's something there that works. Can we translate that informal into formal? That's the big piece of research that we're working on at the moment. And I'm really hoping that we learn some positive things from it, but that we can also apply that learning to other underrepresented groups. One of the the fascinating things, I think, about all the levels you're getting to with the research of how you can assist teachers and help with that is that you're kind of like the teacher's best friend because they are judged on how well their students do, not on how well the top 5% do, but on how well all of them do. And to have a body like Raspberry Pi coming to them and going, look, these are ways to improve this new subject. I'm sure some of them see it as, oh, God, we've been forced to do computer science. You're giving them the tools and the advice on how to accelerate their progress in that. I'm assuming you get very good reception from the schools you work with and the teachers you advise. Yeah, we do. We're very lucky. And the government recognised the importance of the subject computing and investing in teachers too. So the Department for Education in England, that they put some money behind this. And together with BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT and STEM Learning, Raspberry Pi Foundation, we formed a consortium and we're actually supporting the DfE in training all the teachers in England. We provide them with face-to-face training, online training, certification as well for both primary and secondary teachers. And we created an entire curriculum that includes everything a teacher needs, lesson plans, slide decks, assessments, homeworks, all the way from age five through um, 16. And although we've created that for teachers in England, the great thing about all that content is it's globally accessible and it's free. I mean, it's all there. You just got to come and find it and use it and give it a go. So I do hope we are teachers' best friends. <laughs> That's always been my goal. I, I was a computing educator for a long time. So I, I always strive to try and make sure that we support those teachers because ultimately I want all those young people to love the subject that I love. And I really love computing and computer science. You know, it just drives me so much. I just think it's such an amazing subject. And I think if everyone has just a good learning experience, you know, I think it could just be transformative. How can we encourage kids to, I mean, obviously they, they have to attend these classes when they're in school, but how can we encourage them to really embrace it? Are there any key things that the non teaching community can do to help? Yeah, definitely. I think parents play such an important role. I'm a parent of a very young child at the moment. I have a three-year-old and I'm seeing it through new eyes myself. I can see how he interacts with technology. And I think young people are very curious. They're curious about the world around them, even from a very young age. And just talking about technology in a way that demystifies it, even just doing something as simple as walking around your home and doing a, a sort of computing safari where you just ask, what devices in this room do you think have a computer? Why do you think that? Does the fridge have a computer? And in your home, your fridge might be uh, an intelligent fridge. Uh, and you can start talking about why, how does that work and what's involved? And just that natural curiosity, I think, just plays such a, such a big role. I've worked with parents in the past who perhaps are surprised at parents' evening when I've said, oh, you know, your, your child isn't performing very well on my subject. And they think, oh, but they love computers. It's like, what is it about the computer that they love? And are you really connecting with them and understanding what the, they love and, and guiding them? And then I think the last thing is signposting. I think parents really want to signpost their young people to where these learning experiences are, perhaps don't know where to start. I definitely think taking them to any sort of after-school club that might be running like Code Club or at Lime 
libraries and maker spaces, running Coda dojos. We have a, an online event that happens every year called Coolest Projects, which anyone can take part in. We work with the um, European Space Agency on a program called AstroPi, where you can have your code run in space. I think just knowing that there are these things that you can do, visiting the website, and not just ours, but others uh, that are doing competitions and things like this, it will give you some ideas about how to interact with, with your young people and point them in, in the right direction. And I think if we can all just be, as human beings, keep our curiosity, even as adults, whenever we're talking about these things, try to, to keep that open-mindedness. I hear a lot when people think about mathematics, and I hear it a lot from women when they say, oh, I was never very good at maths. And we're starting to hear a little bit now, oh, I was never very good at technology. I think if we can try and lose that terminology, because I think people listen to that, and I think we're all very good at downplaying these things. If we can all be a little bit more positive about some of these um, subject areas, I think that would also be really helpful. What I find quite interesting about that is it, it fits for me a little bit when you're saying about the parent who comes to parent evening and goes, but my kid loves computers. It's like, but there are so many levels. It's like saying, I love food, but I don't want to you know, eat that type of food or I don't want to make it or I don't want to grow it or breed it or slaughter it or whatever. There's so many different angles. And if I think about you know, in the e-commerce space where, where I sit, I work with many women, many men in the space who have differing levels of coding and you know, some are really nitty gritty into it and creating amazing AI-based algorithms and all the rest of it. They don't often come out to play. They're usually tapping away somewhere, but you go right the way through to the salespeople who are also heavily involved with the technology. You have to understand it so as they can sell it and the marketers. And we're all working in this tech space, but from such different angles. And I guess that's why the research you're doing into the training around it all is so crucial. It's identifying those different angles. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about how the curriculum's been going since 2014. So you've now got kids who've kind of experienced the whole of it. And I was curious as to how much that has changed your perceptions of how to teach it when you've got teenagers who've been learning about it properly since primary school? Absolutely. And it's such a good question. You know, it's something we've thought about for a while. In 2014, all the eyes and everything was on primary teachers. How are primary school teachers going to be able to teach this new subject without the skills and everything they need? And then as time has gone on, it's like, okay, well, now transition from nine, 10 year olds in a primary setting into a secondary setting. Uh, 11, 12, how are they going to make that transition from one school to, to another school and to different teachers? And what, what role is that going to play? We're now seeing the transition into GCSE. I think it's still early days. I think we're still learning from it, but it's very encouraging. And I think one of the really encouraging stories that I hear quite often is Code Club started around the same time in 2012. We have children who started with us in Code Clubs when they were six, seven, who are now going off into A-levels in university and they've gone all the way through. You know, they've started with Code Club, they then experienced a curriculum that, that didn't exist before and then took accredited courses, which didn't exist before. And now they're going off into, into university. So I think it's encouraging signs, but I think we're still early days to see whether or not this has had the impact that we all hope it will have. Um, but we're very inspired at the moment. You're kind of still in the first iteration, aren't you? It's, just the, it's like the first cohort have gone through. You'll look back in 20 years and go, wow, how much have we learned as we've had more and more and more kids going through the whole process? And I also hope when I look around me that all the technology 
has no longer just been created by white men <laughs> from a certain uh, class, but has also been created by women and from, from people from other underrepresented groups, because I think that will change how our technology works and the technology we have access to. And I actually think it will be better. I totally agree with you. And I, when you were saying about the kids who've been through that full journey, I, I'm imagining that many of them are going off to uni, potentially not to do computer science, but to do English, to do business, to do history, to do physics. And they'll be a, a better student, a better member of the future population because they've had this grounding in computer science as well. That is completely my hope. You know, and I say it all the time. We're not trying to train an army of programmers. Like that's not <laughs> of keyboard warriors. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to equip everyone for whatever world they want to enter. Um, whatever industry or wherever they want to go, to understand how they can use technology to change the world is really empowering. Very recently, I spoke to someone who is a conservationist, and they have been using uh, very cheap hardware like Raspberry Pi. They, they've put it in some places that are very hard to reach, so like Antarctica, to check on the penguins. But because of the pandemic, they weren't able to go back and pick up the device or taking these pictures of penguins. Um, and so Fast forward at two years, they went and picked it up and they thought, oh, I'm not sure where or not this is going to have worked. But then they downloaded the pictures and they had all these images of penguins over the course of two years. And so they were able to work out how the penguins were migrating, the patterns. They could even see um, the glaciers moving, kind of receding and coming back again. They could run machine learning algorithms on those pictures to learn from it. And this is someone who cares about conservation, it cares about those penguins, but is using technology and their knowledge of programming and computer science to better inform conservation. And that, to me, is the key here. The world is becoming more digital. How can we use digital technology to change the world for the better? Yeah, and in order to do that, we have to know what digital technology is. <laughs> Hence, it all comes back to what we're learning in school. Now, you mentioned AI and machine learning there, which we haven't spoken a lot about today. But are those two of the kind of big pillars of the curriculum for you know teaching children how to use this to further our society in the future? Are they two really important parts or are they a smaller part of the mix than I might imagine? Well, they're, they're technically not on the curriculum because the curriculum was formulated in 2014. Well, the program of study was uh, formulated in 2014. So they're, they're not quite on there as statements. However, yes, I do think it's really important. I think if it was being written now, they would be on there. It's because that technology um, is all around us right now. It has uh, implications for all of us uh, in our day-to-day -day life, but also ethically, that I do think it's really, really important. And we're, we're sort of at the stage that we were sort of 10 years ago, really, when we were reintroducing programming and thinking about what programming languages we should use with young people to learn. Sort of at that stage, really, with machine learning and AI. And so I think this is a really good time for us now to start trying different ways of teaching machine learning and AI to different age groups um, to see whether or not it sort of resonates, it can fit into the curriculum, and then, again, that it can have a meaningful role in, in their lives going forward. But I do think it's very important. I think just understanding how it works is one aspect, but then, again, being able to build it, that's really important as well. And so there's some complex computer science going on there. For sure. We're thinking at the moment about how we can abstract that in a way, which means young people understand what's going on, they understand the implications, and they can start building their own technologies with it. So uh, it's an exciting time, I think, for that subject area, for sure. Thinking back to your button example, it's one of those areas where you need to deploy it in the curriculum at the point where it excites kids. Right. Not at the point where they go, oh, lordy. <laughs> 
I'm not taking this as a GCSE, you know, it has to be the right point, which I guess is where so much of the research work you're doing comes in. But what I find somewhat intriguing, and this is going to be a slightly left field question, just to to pre-warn you, it strikes me that, you know, there's a huge amount of work going into to what you're doing in the computer science space to improve the curriculum and to improve the learning experience of those in our schools. Is it something which gets cross-populated into other subjects as well? Are things you're learning and things you're able to advise, is that something you're proactively taking into other subject areas or something you're seeing schools take into other subject areas? We're not proactively doing it, but I think you're right. All subjects kind of learn from each other. And our close cousins are mathematics and physics. I think we've learned a lot from them. Um, But our subject, it has very specific pedagogies and things that relate really to programming. But we also have some that relate to uh, misconceptions. So misconceptions in computer science, they come up all the time. Children learn something and they think that's how it works, but it takes them down a road where later on they get to another piece of learning and actually they've got the wrong end of the stick beforehand. And that happens a lot in mathematics. Um, So we've been able to learn from them and we're sort of feeding back into mathematics what we're learning about that right now. I think with teachers, there is definitely um, a hunger for kind of cross-curricular activities with technology. I think it's a, it's a tricky thing to implement, particularly in um, older age groups where they're in separate subject areas. Mm-hmm. But there definitely is a hunger, I think, to, to sort of be able to teach Vikings and to do a Viking project that uses technology or, or something else uh, that, that students are working on. There's definitely a hunger from teachers, but I'm not sure we've quite figured out how to, to, to make the crossover quite yet. But it's definitely in our future. It's definitely something that we're thinking a lot about. Carrie-Anne, it's been a real treat to chat to you about the future of learning and everything you're doing. It's fascinating. I cannot wait to see those students who've been through this process coming through into the e-commerce space because it's not going to be very long until we start seeing them having an impact. Thank you so much for sparing your time to be a part of this Future Focus UK Expo podcast series. Thanks for listening to Future Focus, the UK at Expo podcast series. Look out for more podcasts in the series or subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. And if you want to stay up to date with all things UK Pavilion, links to our social media channels can be found in the episode description.